Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, we put the best and worst journalism of the year under the microscope and discover why the cost of rebuilding Albert Square has gone millions over budget. Plus, we plot the trajectory of personalised podcast ads and, in the media quiz, challenge our guests to name the personality at the heart of the TV shows soon to come to our screens. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And joining us is theweek.co.uk's Rebecca Gilly. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. Uh, now, it says here, what have you been up to since we last met? We last met this morning, recording The Week Unwrapped. Yes, that is indeed what I've been up to. So, probably not very interesting. But for our listeners, yes. what have you been working on recently? Um, well, uh, as you just said, we have been doing uh, the podcast. And we it's funny, actually, I got um, we got tweeted at today by Cheltenham Science Festival, where we did a live show last year. And it's funny, because we're kind of in the process of maybe putting together another live show. No one's no one's spoken to me. We'll see if you're available. No one's asked my agent. I'm very expensive. <laughs> uh, uh, and we also welcome back the MD of production company Gold Waller, Faraz Osman. Hello, Faraz. Hello, Ollie. Uh, only three weeks of the year left. Busy, stressful. Well, this time of the year is really weird, particularly for telly, because everyone who is it foot off the gas already. It's not for us, but I think for for people that have got the purse strings, um, things get a little bit uh, quiet. Emails, less emails get returned, so it's uh, you do a lot more bugging in the hope that you can get people before they do disappear off to wherever their Christmas holiday homes are. And someone who's no stranger to mulled wine and a mince pie. In fact, you're jetting off after this to your own Christmas party. I am. It is the MD of something else, Steve Ackerman. Three guests, everybody. Three guests Hooray. on the media pod. Uh, what's on the radar of something else next year? Lots of things you can't tell us about. Uh, we, yeah, definitely that. Uh, there'll be a big new podcast release coming in January. Uh, we look off, we'll be producing the Trevor Nelson show on Radio 2 oh, yeah. uh, that takes over from Sarah Cox, yeah. which we currently make. And an exciting TV project with another ageing rocker, which seems to be our speciality the past few few years. So. so following on from Ronnie Wood? Yeah, but not Ronnie. But not Ronnie. Another decent name. So, Another decent name. Okay, speculate at will. Let's talk about EastEnders. Over budget and over the deadline. They've been rebuilding the EastEnders set, and it's going to cost £27 million more than expected. Bear in mind public money, really, because this is the BBC. Um as you work with the BBC. What's, uh, <laughs> they didn't give me this amount of money to build some houses, though. <laughs> does, uh, does this experience echo yours in terms of project management? Uh, I mean, like, it's a big project, and they've underestimated it. And the thing, the thing about the Beeb is, because it is a public service and it's a state institution, the, 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 risk, the risk of kind of going over budget and over, you know, overspending is not doesn't really feel as urgent when you're a small company and I've kind of been on both sides of it it's like they so they, this costs more it's what they're not going to take EastEnders off air so it's like they're going to have to do it so why they, do they have to do it can someone explain um, why it needs to be done they've sort of been forced into a corner really for doing it because they can't shoot in high definition at the moment because the old set is so tatty um, when it was originally built, it was only supposed to last for two years, but it's now lasted for, I think, more than 30 years. Which is bonkers. And very BBC. And it's very, it's, if, like, if they shot in high definition, you'd see all the little wall wobbles and all the you know, little fake walls and everything. But it's on BBC One HD standards, isn't it? So is that an upscaled version then? Have they not filmed it in HD? My, understa- my understanding of it, it's, without getting really boring and technical, but my understanding of it is that it's broadcast in HD, so it... It looks better than if it was broadcast in SD, but it's filmed in SD. Why so can't they does... do that with the regional news then, instead of giving us that Be- fucking screen? <laughs> because because <laughs> the, because the trans- 2018 for God's sake. Because the transmitters from local news are SD transmitters. So it's it's so local news is filmed in SD and it's transmitted in SD. Whereas 
a, a BBC One is a it can be a HD transmitter, so it is delivered on an HD channel, and it still looks a bit better because it's not being compressed when it gets to you. That's but why the cameras. Here, you see. That's are why it's here. Impressive, Nerdy. My God, is that the most boring thing you can listen to for Christmas? <laughs> right, go and open some crackers. Okay, but let's just talk about the numbers because they are quite staggering. So the original forecast for the scheme was fifty nine point seven million pounds to HDI's Albert Square. It's now going to be eighty six point seven million pounds. Steve, do you think that is justifiable? Well. Whether it's justifiable or not is a different thing in terms of you're basically creating a film set. But I think the re- part of the reason why this is really in the public glare and why it's so pertinent at this current time is obviously what's going on with the licence fee for OAPs mm. and the cost saving potentially that needs to be found there in terms of, I think, that's something like £800 million. And therefore, when you have these sorts of overspends and you look at this, you go, well, that's kind of the programme budget probably of something like six music. Yeah, I think it's two-thirds of the budget of Radio right. 4. So in a fell swoop, you know, that's that's a lot of money to be spending on a programme that's made twice a week, though admittedly the BBC gets great value from it because it's every week, 52 weeks a year. But, 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 but the crucial element, I think, is framed within this licence fee problem and the fact that in 2019 it is coming like this big boulder down the road that either the BBC has to solve that or they've got massive, massive cost problems coming and therefore things like this really start to get scrutinised because you say, how can the BBC be overspending to such a, deg- a degree when they have to tighten their belts? And again, it's about trying to stay up to date with its um, you know, com- commercial peers. It wasn't that long ago that um, Coronation Street had their entire set. Mm rebuilt um, and also they had recently had the I think it was the Victoria Street extension which we actually talked about on the week unwrapped I think everyone was baffled that I wanted to bring it up but they brought in new shops sponsored by the co-op and Costa oh, right, yeah. which obviously the BBC wouldn't be able to do in the same way but they're also going to be adding some new locations to Albert Square and its environs and actually they are still going to continue filming at the BBC Elstree Centre in Boreham Wood which I suppose they actually have a responsibility to that community too it doesn't get talked about very often because it's not a very sexy regional outpost is it Elstree it's thought of as Greater London but, but this, I mean it's a regional commitment that actually isn't it uh, well, is it Austria a regional is commitment it, is it really? um, <laughs> that, that sounds like a, a little bit of a I don't know is it it feels well, like it's on it's a London, London train, it, train map it, it, it's, so, it's uh, on the Thames link <laughs> it's in the Oyster is it, Zone is it, is it inside the M25 Austria? it's just about inside the oh, so M25 so I don't think it can be cast as regional then but yeah. But regardless, it's very convenient for me <laughs> my understanding is that this set is quite close to the other set is it not I don't know where they're building the new one. Ma, I think it's I think it's quite close by. I might be wrong. Well, the plot is not big. BBC Elstree is yeah. a small site. And and uh, my understanding is that this new site is nearby, so it's not like they're kind of like moving away from Elstree. Um, although I do think it's always really hilarious that EastEnders is filmed in West London. Um, but look, I, I think they they need to do this. What I'm worried about, I don't know if I'm worried about it, but what there's a possibility is that because they overspent so much, they know they then need to justify it afterwards so you need to post justify it does that mean that we're going to see loads of like East Ender specials or Strictly Come Dancing from the streets of Albert Square where, they're, where they'll try and kind of like use the set for other things to kind of spread the cost out on other programming which is again a very BBC thing to do the East Enders experience exactly and they'll, they'll do things like that and you'll, you'll kind of that's feel good, like it's that's good they're, they do it with the old Coronation Street set yeah I think. give something back I yeah, but that's but the EastEnders experience is a commercial thing, so so they they won't necessarily be able to do that and chart you know pay for it. But it could it could. What I'm worried about is that you'll end up with a glut of programming, or from one particular supplier, or what in one particular space, and then and then BBC One just becomes the EastEnders channel because they try and film everything there. What would be interesting is to find out whether or not they're putting other studio facilities when they're building that. So if they're building lots of fronts of buildings and houses, mm. are they building different types of fronts of buildings and houses so they can open it up to indies like me to kind of film um, a set of a drama of something that we can't afford to do, but suddenly this becomes available? That becomes quite interesting. That's quite difficult though, isn't it? When you've got a set that's in use... You know, regularly, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, a, f- a few times. You know, you, it's very difficult and to really squeeze in other, to other productions. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose as well that if if you were spending this kind of money on a new soap opera, if the BBC said we're going to spend seventy five million pounds building a set for our new program, the public really would be up in arms. But because it's EastEnders, because it's been on for that long. You can, it's got a built-in argument, hasn't it? That clearly, it's going to be successful. It's going to work, and that's what it costs. Well, I, uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily true in the sense of again, when you look at the amount of hours and output that comes out of it. Obviously, the problem here is the overspend and the fact that if you were a commercial entity, you might be a bit closer on the numbers because you'd have well, to you'd be. Well, you'd be fired, wouldn't you? If you well, did. yeah. I mean, potentially. Um, look, I mean, the truth is, obviously, none of us are close enough to this in the sense of um, you know monitoring this. I, you know, I do find it interesting. This has only really emerged because of the. 
uh, what are they called the public accounts committee the or the or yeah, or, yeah yeah so it's only really come out it hasn't this hasn't come out through the BBC this has come out through the auditing of the BBC or the monitoring of the BBC um, and obviously the BBC is always on the back foot when there's ever any element of an overspend or waste of money but then again you have to say well it kind of should be because it is public money okay little tip for you if you are in Boreham Wood and you want to do a TV backstage tour if you go to the park next to Tesco you just need to walk five minutes into the park you can see the Buckingham Palace balcony from the crown it's right there in the middle of the park it's really weird you're not busy enough are you (laughs) I can listen to podcasts whilst I'm walking Steve Uh, right let's talk about Time Magazine and their nomination of Person of the Year 2018 Um, It's not a single person at all, is it, Rebecca? But there's one in particular who's captured the headlines. Who's that? It's Jamal Khashoggi, um, Mm. who was the um, Saudi journalist who was murdered in the Saudi Arabian consulate. Again, they're following sort of in the tradition of last year where they had the the Me Too movement was their person of the year. It's a very apt choice, obviously, for lots of reasons. But I think the expanding out to be an award for groups of people um, something that I think maybe they are going to start maybe they should start l- looking to move away from so yeah so, th- so it's not just Khashoggi it's also uh, Chow Sao Wu and mm-hmm. Wa Lone who are the two Reuters journalists jailed in Myanmar after yeah. investigating the massacre of Rohingya Muslims there there's the Capital Gazette in Maryland mm-hmm. which had a fatal shooting back in June that's a whole newsroom uh, and Maria Ressa who's a journalist in the Philippines facing tax evasion charges that she calls political Harassment. So it's a whole group of journalists who are under the cosh, basically, including yeah. one very high-profile one who died. I mean, it's a political statement, isn't it, that journalists are under threat? Do you think it's the right time to do that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think in terms of, you know, the choices they could have made, I think that's a very strong one, especially, you know, we've had so many attacks on the media through the year, um, you know, both from in this country, you know, over Brexit, there's been lots of attacks on both right and left-wing media and then of course in the US you've got Trump and his ongoing war against the media so I think this is a really strong statement I just personally think they're starting to move away from kind of the whole premise of the award and start and it's just starting to be pinned to movements of the year rather than the actual idea of it being attached to one particular person. And Khashoggi's the first person ever to win it after they've died. Is that true? Yeah, person of the year used to have to be someone alive. That's really interesting. I suppose it's a nice way to draw attention to his work, which is the point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that news story is incredible because it's stayed in the news when so many things have happened this year that that you've just simply forgotten about. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and, and the way that that story has been drip-fed to, to, to the audience via the Turkish government and it's stayed within the news agenda and, and passed so many news cycles is, is astonishing in its own right, let alone the kind of horror of, of the story itself. I mean, I, I saw the announcement when I was looking through Twitter and um, Christine Amanpour's Twitter kind of came up from CNN and she kind of mentioned it and said, you know, this is, we're all Marcus Oji and, you know, we all should kind of um, celebrate people that do whatever they can to strive for, truth, for the truth and expose stories. And the replies underneath it are just awful. You know, they're they're just people that kind of go, no, we're not the same. You know, he he deserved to go. And like, you know, why are you, you know, obviously the whole Saudi job, they're giving us loads of jobs and this is a bigger story than it needs to be. You know, that's the very tame version of what you can see underneath that story. And, And there is a kind of concern that people like Time Magazine and CNN are kind of celebrating things that we should be celebrating but it but when it comes to kind of the 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 um, response to it actually that's never really spoken about and vocalized unless you're in in that world and it's pretty pretty dark and pretty bleak you know we are talking about this story because um, what happened in Maryland was you know was not directly but part of the part of that issue and part of that story you look at the the, the bombings that were going on around America when all those packages were sent around America that's mm-hmm. based around our attitude or the attitude that's been created to the press and and whether or not they're real or kind of pushing an agenda and that's that's terrifying but isn't that the when you think about Time magazine and obviously it's ultimate audience is an American audience and and you know it just got referenced about Trump ultimately that's really the underlying message I think through this award isn't it because that right. whole theme of fake news and a message to who? a message to I mean, Trump no to a message, stop no, no I think I think I think it's a I think a message to the American public you know that's this is trying to show an endorsement for it's, this is this isn't about an endorsement for journalists this is about a fundamental element of democracy which is the ability to have a free press and for those in power to be held to account. And that's what's been questioned through all these different incidents this year. But especially in America, the language and dialect of Trump 
is is what's given permission for some of some of those sorts of online social media comments and, to and be that's, raised. And, and that's correct. But I think my, my point is, is that it's Time magazine and it feels like Time magazine and CNN and the BBC and like, you know, this is the kind of whole where it's the mainstream media celebrating the mainstream media. And, you know, I absolutely think it's the right thing to do. And, and you know, these people should be celebrated and the work they're doing is absolutely exceptional. I guess what I'm saying is that there's, there's the other part of this story is that the reaction to this isn't the reaction that we have in the room, which is, yes, we should celebrate journalists and they've done amazing work and let's applaud them for the fact that they put their lives at risk and sometimes even lost their life to expose the truth and expose kind of really nasty things going on. Actually, the reaction from a, a quite significant proportion of people is is quite dark and bleak. And, and I don't know who, you know, how do we um, expose that and how do we talk about that outside of... Yeah, you know, because there is this tendency, I think, for... Like you say, it's kind of a self-perpetuating circle where the more and more hostile a segment of the population is becoming to the media, the more the media tends to lionise itself and heap praise on how, you know, sort of brave and noble the the whole profession is, which, you know, is true in his message. It needs to be said that obviously those journalists are doing incredible work, but it does tend to further reinforce the segment of people who see the press as very self-congratulatory and out of touch. And there's no sign, is there, that Trump's going to pedal back from the whole kind of fake news crusade it's it's working for him he can say anyone who's criticizing me is criticizing me because their own agenda not because it's true yeah absolutely but i think that was what made the inclusion of the capital gazette journalists a really savvy move because you know the other people they chose to feature you can't you can't really directly tie that to trump or to you know the kind of the trump movement whereas that one i think you know it's, it's and it's also a reminder that you don't have to be a super high profile journalist antagonizing a, a massive totalitarian regime to be in danger you know they, those journalists were shot by a disgruntled local person who didn't like the way they reported a story about a legal case against him and it's interesting isn't it that the the time person of the year still matters um you know you could believe if you listen to a version of this podcast from 10 years ago that by now it would be you know the huffington post person of the year that mattered but it isn't is it, it people are still looking to these heritage brands and these kinds of things for well is that really true is this really generating Massive. Well, what's, increase- a, what's a new media equivalent of this? Well, there isn't. That's true. But whether this necessarily generates huge column inches and certainly reaches out to some of the people we've just been talking about, I mean, cl- clearly it doesn't. Um, it's something that interests people like us and will interest columnists in the Times and the yeah, Guardian. I what I'm getting at is if you ran a restaurant, it might mean more to you if someone reviewed you in GQ than if you had a really good score on TripAdvisor, even though actually the latter is the one that's going to affect your income. I mean, there's still heritage. It's credibility, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. they, they afford credibility to a certain story and... Um, and and it, I, I think it has. I genuinely think it has historical value. People, when they, you know, I did it when I found out who this year's time person of the year was. I looked at previous time persons of the year, mm. um, and and I think that the, you know, that's a big major asset that, that time have, and and I think they'll can continue to, to to keep that tradition because they know it gets a bump in their their own brand recognition every year that they do it. Um, well, you know that you know that Donald Trump has some fake uh, time person it's of the year <laughs> <laughs> pictures on his wall. What? He, this is absolutely true. <laughs> he has. He, uh, see, Rebecca, the What's producer, is nodding at me to I confirm it's true. Donald Trump has, I think, two or three time people of the year, you know, uh, covers, but they're not real. Yeah. Someone created them for him. See, if someone else had that as a kind of leaving party gift at a Christmas dinner, yeah, it would yeah. be all right, wouldn't it? But with him, different vibe, yeah, yeah, different vibe. My dad actually used to have the mirror. You ever see that? Like it would be a mirror that said Time Man of the Year so that when you look into it, it's you. Classic um. dad humour. <laughs> right, now, uh, Faraz having proved his worth on uh, the economics of EastEnders, um, Steve, I'm glad you're here because there's a football in the press story, which I have no interest in but you can help us with, which is about Raheem Sterling accusing the press of biased reporting because, uh, let me see if I get this right, he posted two versions of a similar story one of the protagonists was white, one of the protagonists was black, and he's saying, look at the treatment of black footballers by the national press, the tabloids, really, versus white footballers. What what did he post, and did he have a point? Well, he, I think he does have a point. I mean, he's, you know, he is probably the most um, prominent young black footballer in Britain today. He is, he is a superstar, and he is well on his way to being a world superstar. I mean, he is a fantastic player in the top team in the country, potentially one of the top teams in Europe. So he's a, he's a fantastic player. And he has received, I think a lot of what's driven this is actually 
um, not just the press, but he's received a lot of abuse within stadiums, racist abuse. And I think he's highlighted a really valid point. And I thought it was interesting, the reaction of, of the, the head of the journalist union or whatever it was, which we'll come on to in a minute. But really, I think the point he's raising is unconscious bias. So there was, there was basically two, two stories. One of a black football player at the start of his career who had bought a house for his mum. And the, the article used language to suggest that this was... It was a bit crass and he, he shouldn't be doing this because it's only the start of his career. And why is he spending so much money? And look at these young black players that kind of splash the cash as soon as they get an opportunity to. Yeah, and that last and, bit, obviously, is the insinuation to literally say that in the mail. But yeah, carry well, on. It's not, it wasn't far off that. Fine. So the, the headline wasn't, say, wasn't far off that. And then, and, then the, and then, well, he didn't say, yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> it didn't mention their race. Or, or, but, but it kind of certainly, certainly suggested that, um, uh, that what they were doing was, um, was not appropriate in, in the Mail Online's view of how people should be saving their money. And then there was an, another story which is pretty much exactly the same, which was a young white footballer who had, uh, again, start of his career, who had bought a house for his mum. And it was very much a much more um, admirational uh, headline. You know, this is a, look at this young player. He's just been signed and he's bought a house for his mum. Isn't that great? But is it right that that distinction was made because one was black and one was white, do you think? Well, I think that this... this so this is when I think it's interesting about the insights, the reactions that, that we got. There were two really interesting reactions. One was from uh, someone very senior at the PFA, the Professional Footballers Association, who, who, who was black and said the, the issue here is there are, not an, there are not enough influential black leaders at the top of football clubs and at the top of football journalism. And therefore, that informs, obviously, the lens through which you view things. And the other interesting reaction was from the guy who heads up, I think, the Sports Writers Association or something like that, who basically said, well, there's no football writers who are racist. They would never intentionally be racist, which I'm sure is also true. But the point is, this is why it's uh, unconscious bias, because it's about the lens through which you view something. And if you are a white person coming from a middle class background, you view things in a very different way from if you come from a very different background, whether that's through diversity or class. Rebecca? The twist in the tale here is that the male online writer who who wrote the story was um, Anthony, Joseph. Anthony Joseph, who is an Asian Scottish man, uh, and he says that he has received racist abuse and death threats from people who are offended by what was perceived as his racist reporting. Um, so that's like another kind of odd layer to the whole saga, and which also, does go uh, to show that it is about unconscious bias. But also, he writes for an online news title, so do you. He yeah. follows a formula when he writes these articles, so do you. The yes. formula in the Mail Online is always, and always has been, regardless of who they're reporting on and what their ethnicity is, how much is the house that they live in and what is their ethnic background. That comes into every Daily Mail article. I remember when Amy Winehouse died. Mm. You know, it was Winehouse, comma, who lived in a four million pound Camden townhouse. Yeah, I mean, and by the end, you know, Winehouse, who's the daughter of a Jewish cab driver. That's how the Daily Mail yeah, operates. I mean, it's not, so it's not just for football. It's not so it? much, about, of course, about, you know, it's not just about the money. Obviously, the, the Daily Mail has always had a very strange, prurient interest in how much money people have and what they're doing with it. It's to me, it's about and I say to me, but, you know, what you see um, writers of colour write about a lot of times is about good faith and the assumption of good faith. And that's just one of the one of the things that non-white people are often not accorded in the press. You know, when it's a white footballer, oh, he's bought this house for his mum. Isn't that a nice thing to do? And it's a black footballer. You know, it's playing into the stereotype. You know, he's a young black man. Where did he get? You know, the, the underlying assumption that he shouldn't have all this money. You know, he doesn't really deserve it. And look at him flashing it in your face, reader, you know, that he has all this money. It's all about, to me anyway, it just seems like it's all about the assumption of good faith. And that's something that um, especially black people are not afforded in the press very often. Isn't it a bit much for us to say that directly translates into monkey chants on the terraces? I mean, that's a completely different league of overt racism, isn't it? To someone reading an article and saying, oh, he's from Nigeria and look how well he's done for himself. I don't, I don't, well, I mean, I'm not Raheem Sterling, unfortunately. Yes, I, I can't exactly speak for him, but I don't think that's exactly what he was saying. I think that he was saying no, that no, it, all, it, it all plays into the attitude towards you know, it's unconscious bias. It's like, you know, if you see a black footballer doing well and you're you're from a different, you support a different club, when you look to put him off, I think it was doing, it was a throw in at the time, you know, when you look to put him off, what you go to is his race because that's that's what you know will push up a certain button. Um, and, and that's what happened in this instance and we went from there. What I do think is interesting about this story is how Sterling has reacted to it. You know, he went to Instagram to post articles and make his point and actually the tone that he's used and the fact that he was kind of like just smiling it off and saying you know what this is just it this is just what you have to deal with and like whether you like it or not that's how it works you know we think about this a few not even even a few years ago you think about what happened with Beckham when he put his leg up and he was kind of vilified across all of the press he had no way to respond to that in his own voice and in his own right and and Sterling has very much 
taken to his own platform and put across his own point in his own way. He doesn't need a journalist. He doesn't need to go to the Daily Mail and do a sit-down interview and kind of like, you know, put his view across. He can do it, go straight to his fans and, and create this whirlwind of, of response that, that I think is a really positive thing. So it's a good on him, I say. OK, we'll be back with some more news in brief after this. <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Time for some media news in brief now. Steve, Rebecca and Faraz are still with me. And we learned this week that the government bought £100,000 worth of pro-deal Facebook ads in the week leading up to the scheduled vote that never happened in the House of Commons. Whereas, have you seen how much of our money was spent on what? Sorry, so there's, so yes, it's £100,000 of money that's been spent on social media adverts. And I've seen a lot of them. Every time I log into Twitter, I seem to see Theresa May's plan for a, you know, the best Brexit or whatever it is. There's been a lot of these kind of 10-second adverts that, that are focused on different parts of her deal. It's, it's curious about why she's done it, or, her, or at least why her team have done it, because um, it seems to me to suggest that she's trying to influence the public opinion about her deal, yet it's the votes of... Parliament that she needs to get through, and and it's it's not she's not spent her time lobbying her her fellow Conservative members um, or or even her you know the her opposite bench. Well, it hasn't worked because it hasn't worked. So she she thinks that if she she persuades the public about it, and let's be honest, Facebook ads and, and social media ads are at the moment some of the most persuasive advert advertising that you can do. That could then move public opinion into her favour, and and her MPs and the MPs of the opposition would have to follow suit. Yeah, I mean the strategy actually makes sense, doesn't it, Rebecca? It's the same strategy for her going on the Today programme and LBC. Yeah, isn't I mean it? absolutely. It's just you know there's a modern sheen on it because it involves social media, but fundamentally, you know, she needs to get the public on board and kind of go down the most traditional route there is really in British politics, which is that the public lobby their own MPs, mm. and their MPs then you know reflect that in what they do in Parliament. She certainly hasn't got very far appealing to her MPs directly. So. No, but it seemed to work for the vote of confidence, didn't it, actually? A lot of MPs did say, you know, I've got an inbox heaving with people supporting the Prime Minister because people basically felt sorry for her in that instance. Yeah, so, you know, I guess that's the sort of pressure that she's trying to apply. I don't know if there's a huge crossover demographic between people who are seeing these ads on their social media and the sort of people who pen um, letters to their MPs, but... <laughs> I mean... Should we be criticising the government for using Facebook ads, Steve, when we've seen that it's worked very successfully for governments all around the world? It should just be part of the modern media toolkit. Of course, if you're trying to communicate a message, this has to be part of the plan. And obviously one of the big criticisms around the Remain campaign originally was how they got outmanoeuvred by the Leave campaign, who were much, much smarter in their use of social media. So 
it's completely valid. There's a different question, of course, about whether what she's doing currently with Facebook would have any impact in terms of what's just been described. But it's it's actually a much more sensible approach, I would say, than necessarily going on LBC and the Today programme. Which which is then editorialised, right? So when, when she goes to social media and puts across her vision for the plan, it is, it is laid out as the way that she sees it and it's not editorialised via, you know, an editor of a newspaper or a, or a you know, TV programme, which I think is... Uh, f- for her, essential because actually this this whole world has become so toxic that everyone is kind of putting their own bias on on whether they're a leave campaigner or a main campaigner. So she needs to communicate what actually is in this deal because I actually don't think the public know um, or, f- for that matter, care. The, the curious thing about it and almost the stupid thing about it is that all this is doing is adding more fuel to the second referendum fire. Like you know, if you're going to appeal to the public about your deal, then the most intelligent thing to therefore the, the obvious conclusion to draw from there is go to the public and say whether or not they like the deal when, you, when you've got to the end of that and she's not willing to do that. So so it does feel like this may be, and maybe I'm reading too much into it and being a bit too optimistic from my own political viewpoint, but this may be a movement towards getting that people's vote away because she's appealing directly to the people and not her own MPs. It's interesting tonally, Rebecca, as well, how the, I know it's the government rather than the Conservative Party technically funding these ads, but how the, the May operation has harnessed sort of internet language in in these videos. If you look at them, it's sort of 10 things you didn't know about Brexit or, you know, one minute on how Scotland is going to be impacted by Theresa May's Brexit deal. And she's not in it at all. It's a snappy video with lots of captions and graphics. It it could have been, I'm sure it was, done by a clever advertising agency. It's a world away, isn't it, from Webb Cameron? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, a tremendous amount of money has been spent, you know, across the political spectrum on trying to, you know, appeal to that crucial... That crucial um, Facebook, especially Facebook audience and Twitter as well. Um, but I, d- the thing is, it's all just a bit surface, isn't it? It doesn't. It. Do- I don't know that it does work. If you click on any of those, if you click on any um, promoted tweets, if you click on any official tweets from the Conservative Party, you know there are the comments just underneath say, you know, you're murdering disabled people. You know, it's like I don't think. I think that social media can only work so far. There has to be a certain amount of goodwill to start with, and I don't think that the Tory party grassroots are especially active. Are you sure you're not just reading our app replies? <laughs> There's a lot of crossover. <laughs> Ed Miliband's Twitter is on fire at the moment. Is though. it? Like, oh, it's absolutely Good recommendation. It's brilliant. Um, so is Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's. Right. <laughs> Have you seen this lately? No. Say that, a, again. Say that again. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. <laughs> no, it was a one-time only. Ahmadinejad. <laughs> It was a one-time only deal. Uh, he's been tweeting a lot. He's become a kind of a meme on Twitter. He keeps tweeting about American sports teams um, and little funny comments and about how much he wants to spread peace and love and his travels. And it kind of started out ironic, but now it seems to be kind of taking off and he's okay. kind of redeemed himself in the eyes of many sure, yeah. Twitter users. In not, in, not, yeah. Yeah, not in the eyes of many of his own countrymen. Fine, pressing follow on Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is a sentence I never thought I would say, but it's true. It's exactly what I'm doing right now. Good tip. Uh, okay, let's talk podcasts and new York Times this week noted that podcasts are getting newsier since the Times' own podcast, The Daily, launched a year ago. The number of daily podcasts has trebled. Uh, Steve, you're very much at this coal face. You don't do a daily podcast, though, do you? We do not do a daily podcast. Um, do you think there is mileage in competitors to the daily there's only so many daily podcasts one can listen to on a commute well there's there's, look i mean the evidence is there that obviously you've seen the guardian you've seen radio 4 uh some of the other newspapers in america are launching i know that news uk are investing really heavily in podcasting and i'm sure we'll have daily plans coming out next year and npr and cbc yes so the evidence is there and obviously it is very much driven by the success of the daily which has been phenomenal is making a lot of money now for the new york times and bizarrely has gone back into radio so they're now selling it back to radio stations as a radio show but it costs a lot of money too and this it thing does cost don't a lot of money. well it does cost well i mean it's relative but it, yeah i mean it has a, a pretty sizable production team on it but well it should it's very well produced it's very well made the other thing that i think is really driving the 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 daily-esque element of podcasting is smart speakers because obviously if you're creating daily content and you have a smart speaker in the house you are immediately on a competitive level with the existing radio stations Mm -hmm. and that means there's a whole audience for you to potentially go and grab and the same obviously within car as well so if you're a news organization creating daily content means you're taking the fight to the radio stations and to the to the audio professionals if you like rather than allowing them to own that share of ear and that and that listening time 
Rebecca, do you listen to a daily audio news briefing? No, I don't. I could lie and say I did, but I don't actually. But then I do work in news, so I, I feel like I'm, I know as much as I need to know, <laughs> if not more, um, on a day-to-day basis. But I think it's it's really tapping into it's quite it's a bit of serendipity really because you know podcasting has been on the up for you know the past few years you know quite steeply but it's come along at a time as well where people I think are increasingly feeling quite overwhelmed by the amount of news uh, going on and feeling like it is hard to keep up with what's going on and so I think something that you can digest on your morning commute to work etc while doing other things as well while walking around the house getting dressed blah blah blah, blah I think there's like a, there's a huge appetite for that and the daily podcasts have really come into their own at that crucial time. Actually, what what's interesting about a lot of the daily content that's come out so far is they tend to be less sort of digests and just wrap-ups of the news. And they, certainly with people like the New York Times or, or the Guardian or the BBC, they're deep diving into a particular mm. story and giving... It's kind of like the, the sort of, you know, the long read article or the columnist who sort of gives you some really shrewd observations around a story. Um, so from that perspective, I, you know, that's also quite smart because it's not necessarily looking to replace the fact that you might quickly hear the headlines on the radio or, or, or on the TV or have a quick look at your newspaper, but it's giving you that further layer that you might only normally pick up on the weekend when you dive into a newspaper or have a bit more time to digest something. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think it's replacing for us traditional media in people's lives or is it an additional? Is it a bolt-on? It's, it's replaced mine. So I, I listen to Up First every, every day from so NPR, NPR um, which is NPR. I, I listen to The Daily, which I think is a deep dive. And actually, I, I actually do, I, I agree with Steve that there there's a lot of podcasts that do deep dives, but I have finding increasingly that something like Up First is is, is useful to give you the headlines in, in a very particular way. When you want to press play, you're not waiting for 8am when the, when a bulletin happens. You press play when you're ready to press play, and and, and that's what makes that really compelling. I've, I've struggled to find a British version of Up First, and I don't think there, anybody's cracked it yet. I think the BBC lean too much towards Today Show and go, well, we do the Today Show, let's just clip up the bit of the interview in that and, and put it on our podcast feed. And I think very much it's it's time for a a good headline, fifteen minutes piece in the morning um, for for two reasons. One, because I think commute the commuter hour is becoming more and more essential. It's almost becoming prime times, particularly for podcasts and and you know short form video games and social content. Um, and we're seeing that commuter hour, both to and from work, becoming more and more important. Um, and and I don't you know I don't listen to Today Show anymore. I don't read the papers you know as a hard thing. I'm I'm looking at Twitter. I'm looking at Reddit. I'm looking at apps and and I'm listening to podcasts. So I do think that that's where the tide is is turning and I, I think it's I think it's fascinating the challenge that we have now is that it's oversaturated and for me it's all about discovery so when Steve was talking about smart speakers you're absolutely right uh, you program your smart speaker to, to give you that news bulletin that you want and you may not change it for a very long time I think there are too many of these now and we need to figure out a better way of doing discovery otherwise they're all going to go to the way of the blogs some of this is London metropolitan bubble stuff though isn't it like it, it's all very well for us yeah. to say when we do our sort of underground journeys and we don't download stuff and we're on the internet all the time that we might be changing our listening mm. patterns but if you're Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn and you want to reach the public you're still going to go on the Today Programme or Good Morning Britain you're not going to think to go on the Guardian's daily news podcast are well, you? Well part of the problem is that the podcasting landscape is quite fractured in that sense you know there's no Today Programme of podcasts you know it'd be difficult the thing is is that almost everyone I know and they're not just all metropolitan elites everyone I know listens to Rebecca's s- from Weymouth everybody <laughs> everyone I know listens to some podcasts but not many of them listen to the same podcast. So it's quite hard to capture the market in that sense. Well, it is It is true that up until now, listening is dominated in the UK within the South East. It is affluent. It is ABC One. It's very 15 to 35. That's starting to break down now. Um, however, that's a very similar pattern to we saw with um, with the take-up of um, SVOD and uh, providers like Netflix and Amazon Prime. And, and I think there's real parallels in the pattern of behaviour. And you see this in the podcast stats that once once people start consuming podcasts, mm. they very quickly consume more than one podcast because they start to get into that habit of on-demand mm. listening. And so we are starting to see that. And obviously we're in ACAST headquarters now and they're the experts on the stats. We're starting to, starting to see this spread out beyond the southeast now. Um, and so I, 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 I'm not sure I do think the market is saturated. There's a lot of content out there, and you're absolutely right. Discoverability is, is, a, is a real issue for podcasting. But only, depending on which survey you look at, only between about 15 and 20% of the country are currently consuming podcasts. So that's a huge market that is still to come to this to this art form. And those people who are getting their podcasts delivered to their ears, as of now, Steve, 
might be getting personalised ads. Uh, as you mentioned, we are sitting in Acast's studios at the moment, which are very, they're an upgrade, clearly, on what they had before. Let me go that far. They're, they're pretty. And Acast, the podcast network, have now partnered with a million ads to combine advertiser messaging with data like the weather, time of day, location, show name, show category, or device tape to serve up personalised ads to listeners. What does that actually mean? So what it means, it's super smart, and actually they've been doing this uh, for radio for a few years now, but it basically means that an ad can be absolutely tailored to you. So it might be that um, that they're able to drop in uh, your name in, into an ad or your location. So, um, you know, it might say, hey, if you're passing the McDonald's in Woking in the next five minutes because they know you live in Woking, mm-hmm. but if I live in Lincolnshire, I get a different name dropped in. It's that sort of level of personalization. Now, obviously, it has to relate into the data that's coming the other way. But from from an advertiser's perspective, that, that, that does throw up really interesting... Um, possibilities. It also means from a content perspective you can start to think about these things so in terms of weather variations or maybe local news or that sort of thing but um, but, um, they're, but it's they're, only at the point when you download the show isn't it? Mm. So I mean I might be downloading the show at my nan's house in Glasgow and then get on a plane and listen to it at Luton. I mean it's of no relevance to me anymore. Yeah but well look, well, look I don't know the technicalities about the location, uh, you know how specific that can be but if they have data on who you are or how old you are for instance, if they have your name, then it is possible to drop your name into the advert. So it's like Facebook campaigns, but for audio. For well, us. so Steve Dunlop, who who started this company, is actually a friend of mine, and I've and he actually showed me this tech a few years ago mm. when he left Global and and started this up. So when I read this story, I was a bit like, yes, he's made it. So you know, full disclosure, he is a friend of mine. So this might sound a bit like a pee, it's pee okay. off bluff. We'll, we'll cut this out, and only his version of this download will have this. <laughs> we'll personalize but it, it is a little, it is a little bit like that. Uh, you know, it, it's a smart idea there's no doubt about it it's a little bit creepy because I, I think in the kind of whole Facebook world of you being served an ad and you think that Instagram has got the microphone on and listening to what you're saying but actually they're just incredibly good of going you two people on the same Wi-Fi network and you you know go to the same coffee shop every day so they try and suggest you as a friend when that starts happening it kind of freaks you out slightly if your name if you get an advert with your name in it and you've got your headphones on it's mm. going to freak you out when it first starts happening so it'll be interesting to see what the audience um, take of this is because it, it might start screwing with people's heads. But slightly. if it gets your attention, but from, this is the thing from, from an advertiser's perspective, that's fantastic. And particularly in audio, if you have your name said to you in your ears, like, and you're listening to a piece of audio, sometimes when you're listening to a podcast, you drift off slightly, and suddenly, if you hear an advert that's so deeply tailored to you, Rebecca's not. Keen. Keen. I mean, it would get my attention, but not in a good way. It'd be like you know, being alone and hearing the door creak open. <laughs> but we it's, said it's terrifying. But, but we said the very similar things when Facebook targeted advertising first started happening. Yeah, but this is like, more like visceral. This is too. This is like Dale Winton talking to Renton through his telly. To be fair, though, I don't think they're going to go in hard with the like, hello, Ollie, you know, kind of situation. But I think having ads more personalised makes so much sense because we saw not that long ago there was a study that found that podcast listeners are far more engaged with mm. adverts than users of other you know kinds of media so it it works well in that sense that people are already engaged Also I mean I mean, maybe we, we've gone to one extreme in terms of thinking about people's names but think about it on a product level if they know that you're interested in you know if I'm an ele- electronics firm and I know you're interested in buying tellies but but you know Faraz is interested in, in buying a DAB radio um, it means I can drop a different thing into the advert with a different deal I suppose if you're targeting for example, people who are listening on an iPhone. That's a really useful piece of information, isn't it? If your app is only available on Android. I mean, why target them, yeah. for example? Yeah, I mean, this is an old conversation. Facebook and, and Instagram and Google have been doing... This is how those business models exist. You know, that's why they got so big. It's because they're serving adverts that the user may actually want. Um, you know, there is a kind of creepy level to it. But you can say, again, you can say the same thing about Instagram. You can say the same thing about Theresa May spending all this money on, on, uh, on targeted advertising as well. This is just a smart way of putting that into podcast apps what I do think is interesting is that I feel that the most engaging podcast ads are ones that are read by the hosts and those are always the ones that have worked most effectively and the host is not going to record 1200 variations <laughs> you are going to get paid re- well yeah but um, how much are you getting paid this well, is the this point is, isn't it that if, is if the, your podcast generates a thousand pounds in income a month from us, which is nice that's a pound per read. Steve also did say to me that, like, when I said to him, right, okay, so you're going to personalise names in this, so is, is Faraz going to be one of those names? And he didn't give me a direct answer to that. So I think, I think Rebecca and Steve, Steve Ackerman here kind of is definitely going to get their personalised adverts, but I think mine is a long way off yet. Hello, Faraz. <laughs> uh, let's finish by talking about WPP. The UK staff there are wondering how badly they're going to suffer now after the company has announced 2,500 net job losses across the international business. What's going on at WPP right now? 
Well, what's going on is a re-evaluation of the entire business post um, Martin Sorrell leaving. Which is inevitable. Which is inevitable. But was it coming anyway, and is that part of the reason he left? It was potentially coming. And so part of this is bringing together a number of uh, the different agencies, so, you know, amalgamating different agencies together. Um, it's kind of obviously sensible to be looking at your cost base anyway. And when you look at what they've announced, they've, they've said the majority of these jobs are really back office in terms of finance and IT, which again, the more you bring different agencies together under one roof, then clearly you can start to make those sorts of savings. I mean, I feel a little bit sorry for WPP in the sense of, I think they've kind of, certainly in Adland, they've kind of become the whipping boy a little bit in the past the past few few months because obviously everybody loves to see the giant fall, right? And for such a long time, they have dominated Adland. They were the number one holding company. Um, they're not at the moment. And um, and so I think there's a lot of people who are, who are quite enjoying giving them a kicking. They're still massive though, aren't they, Rebecca? I mean, you know, you lose 2,500 staff from a company like WPP and you probably don't even really notice no, it. No, they, they employ, I think it was 134,000 staff roughly over three something like 3,000 offices. Um, so yeah, I mean, to them this is a drop in the ocean, but that kind of is part of the problem as well. It is such an enormous, unwieldy company that has, you know, has stakes and involvement in tons of things beyond um, traditional advertising. And they're just, they're trying to narrow that down, which I think is probably a pretty wise move. Okay, there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it's Ones to Watch 2019. I've got three questions about TV shows coming onto our screens in the new year. All you three need to do is identify the person at the centre of each show. When you know the answer, buzz in with your name. So Steve, you'll say. Steve. Rebecca, you'll say. Rebecca. And Faraz, you'll say. Faraz. (laughs) Okay, let's go. Question number one. Who takes over hosting duties from David Dimbleby on the BBC's flagship political Steve. debate show? Steve, I'll start it so I finish. On the BBC's <laughs> flagship political debate show, Question Time. Fiona Bruce. Correct. Fiona Bruce, who also hosts the Antiques Roadshow and the News at 10. <laughs> kind going, of got leaked a few weeks ago, didn't it? It so, did, yeah. It's going to be taking over from Dimbleby. Good choice, do you think? Personally, I'm not, I'm not so keen and I would have liked maybe to see someone who's got a bit more personality which I think is what Dimbleby's always had brilliantly and there, and there were plenty of great options there however you can't deny she has authority and respect probably from the politicians as well Do you feel like that as well Rebecca? It's a solid pair of hands but dull Yeah I think that's I think that's what they were looking for and I think it's what they've got I mean I don't know apparently she doesn't intend to give up either the news or antiques roadshow so she's going to be pretty knackered by the time it gets to she might actually have more personality than she's allowed to show at the News at 10, though. I mean, that's the thing, isn't the, it? We're all saying she's want, dull, but she's yeah, never been allowed to do anything. We don't want too much personality, though. That's the thing. There's already so many personalities competing. There's someone ha- does have to retain like some level of sanity to keep it all under control. For yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be Kirsty Walk, but actually, actually this, this does make sense because you're bringing... I think sometimes you f- with the BBC, they feel like if you have a news person doing another news show, you're just kind of... I don't know, I know she is, and that's kind of where her heritage is, but by putting on things like the Antiques Roadshow and, you know, she's been doing more and more of that kind of mainstream stuff, mm. it means that she becomes a... Uh, a mainstream face that's not just a news face and I think that that's what they're trying to pull off here Okay, question number two Which flamboyant figure brings their hit Netflix show to BBC Rebecca. Three next year? I've started to finish <laughs> and I just did Rebecca RuPaul Yes, correct Can I, point of order yeah. That's not a hit Netflix show That's a hit VH1 show Okay, it is only viewable here on Netflix no, though, is it on I'd VH1? I'd be surprised if it is, but that is, a, that is one of those shows that turned VH1 around. It's been on forever, hasn't it? it? Yeah. In America it has, yeah. Potted history of RuPaul's Drag Race, anybody? Um, Go on, it's, a, it's an amazing you theme tune. In. <laughs> and uh, they've and it's made gone, by you World of Wonder, isn't it? Was, it? Which it, was a UK indie and then shut up shop. It was it? I didn't know UK. that. Yeah. And, and also, they've tried to bring it over here a few times. I think Jonathan Ross was involved in trying to bring it over here for a little while. Um, and uh, and and it is it is an incredible show, but it's incredible because it's one of those niche cable shows that have grown and grown and grown. And now it's just a complete giant, probably because of Netflix, and that helped kind of really popularise it. Um, but it's always been a fascinating show to watch as a as a media kind of like pundit or insider. But it has really definitely Why? crossed over. I mean, because, isn't it just a talent competition for drag artists? What's special about yeah, it? Yeah, but it's one of those shows that you couldn't really watch in the UK. So unless you were really into like TV formats and cared about how they were made and like, different ideas that are out there, you didn't really come across it. And it was only until Netflix that a lot of like the British public came across it. Um, and we started seeing it more and more over here. People really don't know. I don't. I, this may be sacrilege to some people listening to this, but I don't think that many people knew who RuPaul was before that show. Whereas she's a massive, massive star in the US, 
um, uh, and this was a big vehicle for it. But it was it was quite a small cable show, and it's and what's quite interesting about it is that it's always retained that feeling that it's quite small and guerrilla and it hasn't got these huge production values that you would see from other reality shows. Okay, here's question number three. This could end up with uh, a tie, so uh, maybe Faraz, don't answer this. It'll make it complicated. (laughs) Uh, Which media mogul is the focus of a three-part documentary to air on BBC Two in the new year? Faraz, I'm just going to ruin your game just because you tried to fix it for me. It's, It's the Murdoch. It is. It is Rupert Murdoch, a tabloid empire. Uh, it will air on BBC Two. A, re- a release date has yet to be confirmed and covers the period from 1997 to 2012 in apparently forensic detail. Will you be watching, Rebecca? I want to see one about Wendy Deng. <laughs> Was she not on the scene from 2012? Probably not, though. I, I bet she's going to be a background character. Yeah. I want to see a separate mini series. You want spin-off. the Deng opus? Are they still together? No, they are no. not. Is no. he married to Jerry Hall? Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah. Um, I'll be watching because it's made by the same people who made the series about Assad that was on a bit earlier mm-hmm. this year on BBC mm-hmm. Two, which, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure it's still on the iPlayer, was absolutely brilliant. And was a, and so I think it's very much going to take the same lines. I think I, I would definitely be watching this, won't you, Faraz? Yeah, I mean, I, this is a fascinating story. It's, it's made even more fascinating by the fact that it's on the BBC. And so you could imagine that Murdoch's going to be watching it and seeing how the BBC want to do a take on him. I, I think that there's, you, you can't get away from that. And I hope that they don't try and sugarcoat that. You know, the reality is, is doing a show about the Murdochs on the BBC says something in its own right. Um, and that should be the headline of this. And I think also there's a lot of scope for nuance in the Murdoch story, isn't there? Like it's so often presented as a black and white thing. And because News International did some terrible things, phone hacking and all the rest of it, that's become the story. But I mean, here is a man who, you know, frankly, he's going to die soon. When those obituaries come out, I think it'll be quite hard to find people to speak in his favour about closing down of the print unions and all this stuff and inventing the sun. But I mean, he has a huge illustrious massive media contribution that he's well made. he also has a, a you know he also does have a massive fan base in terms of there are plenty of people who say he saved the tv industry he was a he was a pirate in t- in tv in terms of really revolutionizing that um if they take the same line they took with the Assad uh, series, then what was interesting about that was it was it was very much looking at the personal side in terms of what led to the motivations behind this man. And, and obviously in Assad's case, how did a guy who was a sort of um, a doctor in London become a brutal dictator and, and what was in his background that led to that? And and if they follow, I'm not saying Murdoch's a brutal dictator, but what could be more fascinating and understand, trying to understand a man who clearly has incredible ambition and and has maintained that for so many years. I, I think it could be a brilliant series. I'll tell you what could be more fascinating, and that is the outcome of the media quiz. It is a one-all draw. Oh, Congratulations. It's, it's incredible. Have you not prepared a tiebreaker? Um, <laughs> no. There's no way around it. I haven't. Participation Faraz trophies the game. all round. Um, <laughs> Ruin's a strong word. Uh, yeah, I'm prepared to stick with it. <laughs> uh, that is it for our show for today. My thanks to Faraz Osman, Steve Ackerman, and Rebecca Gilly. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you enjoy the feeling of giving people money, then consider taking out a voluntary subscription to the show. It is Christmas time. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. And remember, you can catch up with all our previous episodes. It's like the Daily. It's a deep dive. You can listen at any time, <laughs> even if the news is old. And you can get episodes as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production back in the new year. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.